You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Happy Tuesday. How's everybody doing? Welcome back to the show, and it is another big show today. Um, There is the weirdest thing that has happened, and I want to talk about this. And I just want to tell, I think, Chris or Elsie, if you're in the booth, again, I've got a huge echo in my ear. So please shut down the feed there. This is what it's like, folks, on live radio when... There you go. I think we've got that. There you go. Okay. All fixed. This is the teamwork in action. Okay. Now I can kind of focus a little more because I'm not hearing myself uh, echo back in my ear, which is always a little difficult. A couple things today that I think we have to just open up on because this is the weirdest mystery. And and, and I want to, and I just tweeted something out about this because I'm following this extremely closely. Okay. And you might think, what's he on about now? And it has to do with energy. Because we're going to talk about energy today because there's going to be an opposition motion in Parliament that won't go anywhere. But it's going to be Pierre Polyev saying, stop the carbon tax because it's making food more expensive and food prices are way inflated. And he says a tomato in Mexico can be cheaper than a tomato in Manitic, which is an area near... um, Ottawa sometimes, and he's not wrong. We've checked it out. We fact check it with uh, Professor Charlebois, the food professor. At times it can happen. The question is, is it more expensive because of the price on carbon? And the answer is likely not. It is likely have to do with lots of other things. Although the price of carbon, price on carbon does, does raise prices. But there's so many other factors. Labor in Mexico is significantly cheaper than labor in Manitic. So let's get real on these comparisons. But energy is a big thing because the cost of energy contributes to inflation. And one of the reasons energy is so expensive is because of the war in Ukraine and Russia's war on energy right now. They're cutting off their natural gas supplies to Europe. We know that. And it's affecting us here. And you've got, so you've got an energy shortage, you've got high price of oil, you've got climate change issues. Look at the storm in Fiona. I'm not, you know, climate's not, weather's not climate, but these things are happening more frequent. So there are two legitimate things to talk about. The world is facing a climate crisis and reducing carbon emissions is scientifically urgent. I'm not going to debate that in the sense that that's not true. It is true. By the same token, it's hard to tell yourself, well, I, I mean, I'm totally committed to climate change, but I can't pay my bills. I'm totally committed to climate change, but my grocery bills are up 15% from last year or 30% up. You got to deal with the fierce urgency of the now. You got to pay your rent. You got to fill your truck. You got to fill your car. You got to buy groceries for yourself, for your kids, for your loved ones. Life's getting more expensive. Inflation is at 7%. And it's cold comfort. And I mean that cold comfort because you can't heat your house. It is cold comfort to say, well, it's 18% in, in, in the UK. Big deal. We don't live there. We live here. And it's colder here and it's more expensive here. So I'm thinking a lot about energy. I've been obsessed with the topic of energy since my partner 
in not my life partner, my life partner is my wife, but my partner in many books, Andrew Heinzman, he and I uh, co-edited a series of books. One of them was called Fueling the Future, How the Battle Over Energy is Changing Everything. And, and we did that more than a decade ago, focusing on energy as the main driver. So I've been obsessed with this question. And today, the Nord Stream pipeline, a steel pipeline, has sprung to serious leaks. And it's carrying natural gas. It's a Russian pipeline. And when a pipeline like this, that their natural gas pipelines that run under the Baltic Sea have had explosions and huge leaks. The National Seismology Center in Sweden registered the blast off the Danish island of Bornholm These are big explosions, the equivalent of a 2.3 magnitude earthquake. And even the Danish prime minister, I just emailed the Danish ambassador and I said, is this sabotage? And the Danish ambassador said, it's too early for us to know. I can't talk to you about it yet. We just don't know. I'm checking in with Copenhagen. I literally just got, I literally just got off a text with the Danish ambassador because I'm trying to figure out if the Danes because the Danish prime minister said they cannot rule out sabotage because you got three leaks in the Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipelines, three big leaks. And I want to give you some data on that. And there's a guy at Bloomberg named Javier Blass who is a very, very uh, reliable reporter on energy. And he writes this, and it's worth paying attention to. Javier says, how strong, how strong is the Nord Stream pipeline? Well, it's quite strong. The steel pipe itself has a wall of 4.1 centimeters. That's 1.6 inches. And it's coated with another 6 to 11 centimeters of steel reinforced concrete. Each section of the pipe weighs 11 tons, which goes to 24 or 25 tons after the concrete is applied. My point This thing doesn't spring. Three leaks don't coincidentally, freakishly spring at the same time simultaneously in a pipeline that size, with that security, with that thickness of steel and concrete. It doesn't happen. Who would sabotage this? The craziest thing is the Russians. The Russians might be sabotaging their... Now, this is speculation their own pipeline to cut energy supply off and spike prices to Europe. Now, the, are these pipelines bringing gas to Europe? No. There's a, it's tricky to figure out what happened. So I'm watching this. I can't, no one can understand this. The environmental damage, well, it's real. Some say, well, Evan, it's natural gas, it's methane, and it partially dissolves in water, so it's not toxic. But we just don't know if it can be restored. So this is alarming. And I guess what I'm saying here is, if energy prices keep going up, let's let's boomerang this back to Canada. And here today, Pierre Polyev saying, okay, we're in this volatile world. Things are happening. Maybe you should cut the carbon price. 
at least temporarily, to give people relief. So we're going to debate that later in the program. We are also going to keep our eye out on um, what's happening in Hurricane um, Fiona. I'm going to talk to the Premier of Newfoundland and Labrador, Andrew Fury, next. I'm also going to play you what I think. Look, you know I like politics, but I like the personal stuff more. And, and, and I had an opportunity yesterday to talk to Dominic LeBlanc, who almost died of leukemia a number of years ago. He's the Minister of In- Intergovernmental Affairs. I usually give him a pretty rough ride. But when he had leukemia, you know, politics aside, this is personal. He really almost died. And there's an international donor system for stem cells that you get from bone marrow. And a 19-year-old kid in Germany had signed up, and he turns out he was a perfect genetic match for Dominic LeBlanc. He gave him his stem cells and saved Dominic LeBlanc's life. Dominic LeBlanc would have died. And I spoke to, and this kid flew to Canada, and they met for the very first time yesterday. And tomorrow, he's, I, st- I spoke to them yesterday, but they're actually going to join us. Sam's here. Sam, they're going to join us tomorrow? Because I spoke to them yesterday, and I met this kid, and I thought they were going to come on today. They're coming on tomorrow. Yes, they're, they'll both be uh, live on tomorrow. So, oh, so yeah. good. Because I talked to them yesterday. Right, yes. It was very emotional. And I love that. A 19-year-old kid in a small town in Germany saves the life of a stranger. It turns out that stranger is Dominic LeBlanc. Those, anyway... Okay, so that's tomorrow. And I, I, so I met this kid from Germany last night just after he got off the plane. Um, all right. Coming up next, the Premier of Newfoundland and Labrador and the latest on Fiona. How much is the government going to cover people? We'll find out. Bringing the story to life. It's Evan Solomon on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Days after it was hit by this uh, once in a lifetime, maybe not actually, hurricane. Newfoundland, Labrador, and on the southwest coast of Newfoundland is expected to face more heavy rainfall, more potential flooding. Environment Canada has issued a rainfall warning for Port of Basque. Port of Basque, which has already basically been wiped off the map almost, is going to expect another 40 to 70 millimeters to between Tuesday, today, and Wednesday, and maybe 100 millimeters in, in some of the areas. The Canadian Brigade Group based in Moncton, New Brunswick, has been dispatched to the area. They've got about 25 reservists there. There's members of the Canadian Rangers from Newfoundland and Labrador. And up to 100 members of, from three platoons are expected to arrive today. Also, a naval ship, a frigate, has been uh, tasked with helping out on the coast. I spoke to uh, Newfoundland Labrador Premier Andrew Fury last night. I gave him a shout this morning. Things haven't changed that much yet. Um and I told him yesterday that I'd spoken to uh, Rene Roy on this program, who told, Rene, remember he told me this. We had a bomb go off, and it lasted for about 12 or 14 hours. It's, it's been horrible. So yeah, bomb. That's how it's been described. So I said to Premier, uh, I know you're there now. Give me a sense of what you're seeing. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, devastating. It's tragic. It's... Uh... It's emotional, uh, Evan. I mean, the, I've been in different uh, natural disaster zones before, and uh, many of the places I visited today were equivalent um, to some of the uh, natural disasters I've seen in the past. Um, quite horrific images. Um, and, you know, it's one thing to see those images on your broadcast. Uh, it's another to be be there in person and talking to the individuals and 
and realize, you know, that that the roof that's floating in the harbor, it's not just a house, it's a home. And and people lost their homes, uh, you know, lived in those homes for 20, 40 years. And, uh, you know, what was there three days ago is not there anymore, lost everything. And uh, so the, in addition to the, um, the impact directly on infrastructure, the impact on people is, is quite, uh, quite emotional. Yeah, Kate, can you just give people a sense, and, and I know we've got, people have seen pictures of Port of Basque, um, talking to folks there, like houses washed away by the surge, rip, roofs ripped off, as you say, a, a life lost. Um, can, you, can you describe what you're seeing and then may, maybe describe how the community's coping right now? Yeah, sure. You're seeing homes that have been, um, or you see footprints of homes uh, uh, that have been, that there are no homes on. So the cement uh, structures that would uh, hold the, the footings that would hold the home are, are there. Uh, and then you can see a roof uh, that is uh, floating in, in the harbor. Um, you can see a house, for example, I saw a house in Burnt Islands uh, that was uplifted and shifted 30 degrees. Um, you can see uh, just the rooftop in, in, in this community of Burnt Island. There's a rooftop of a house that was shifted and all, it was completely flattened. It really reminded me of the rubble in Port-au-Prince where it was just flattened. All you could see was the roof. And you knew at one point there was a full structure under that. And to see pers people's personal belongings and, you know, thrown onto the, onto the road really makes it more than a piece of downed infrastructure. It really is personal because it's it's someone's home. Uh, the people are, are uh, as you know, Newfoundlanders and Labradorians are resilient, uh, but there's no question that this is emotional. I mean, I talked to one gentleman who had been in the house in his own home for up to 40 years, um, you know, a, a rough and tumbled Newfoundlander, stoic, uh, but my heart broke uh, when he almost shed a tear, you know, describing... Um, mm describing the impact of, of this uh, for him and his wife. You know, simple things, Evan, like they had just finished making this house perfect for them. You know, their kids have grown up and moved on and they just mounted a new TV right. and put on a new deck and, and all lost. Yeah, and, and yeah, these are real moments. Um, okay, there's priorities. I know the military's there. Can you give us a sense what the military's doing and what the priority to get the province, places like Port Basque and other communities back on their feet? Yeah, so in any natural disaster, I mean, there's the, the acute response phase, and we're very much in that. Yeah, because even though the storm rips through and we all see the images, you still really need to do an inventory of the damage that has occurred. Um, for, you know, what homes have been lost, what homes are damaged. Uh, like because, you know, the, for example, that house I talked about that was shifted a couple of degrees, like, is that structurally sound? Or as people return to their homes, uh, is there so much water damage that they're not livable? So there's still very much an inventory uh, and a needs assessment being performed of the exact damage. And then the idea, of course, is to meet the, 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 the skills that are being provided, whether it be through the military personnel or others, with the needs of the community. Because, uh, you know, it's no good just having a thousand people show up. Uh, it's, <laughs> sometimes that can, that can cause more harm than good. We want to make sure that right. the skills meet the needs. Yeah, and they're also, the Navy sending HMCS, uh, Margaret Brook, that's a, um, a frigate. Uh, and then the Ministry yeah. of Defense today said they're going to do wellness checks and, among others. What, what else will, how many members of the military and what will HMCS, Margaret Brook, be doing? Well, the, the frigate will be responsible for um, some of the areas that are more isolated, uh, Ramia, Burgio, um, right. even 
you know, but the military personnel themselves will, uh, I imagine, uh, as you know, I'm not an expert in this field, but I would imagine what I'm seeing, there's going to be a, a, a significant requirement in the short term for engineers, for example, and uh, some manual labor uh, to help clear the debris and then help to assess uh, the remaining infrastructure to right, see if it's right. stable. So, you know, the, you, in addition to providing wellness checks, we, we really want to make sure that we're providing what the community needs right now, and that's really uh, some uh, labor force uh, and expertise around the civil engineering aspect. I just want to tell you, as you're talking, I know you're in Port of Basque, we're just showing pictures from the last, you know, 48 hours. You know, it's just unbelievable. Um, yes. there's, a, there's a financial assistance program. I know the federal government's going to spend 30 days matching Red Cross donations. What other kind of financial assistance might there be for folks who lost stuff? Yeah, so we're, we plan to announce a financial assistance program in the, in the next coming days. Uh, we do recognize uh, that there are families who, you know, were either uninsured or insured, but their insurance won't cover this. And we want to uh, make their minds... Uh, rest more easily uh, by reassuring them that we will be there for them. Uh, so we'll put that package uh, together over the next few days and make it well known to people. Look, Evan, I know it's going to be frustrating uh, for people. It's going to be frustrating for anyone who has to make any insurance claim on the best of days, let alone when you don't, you know, you don't even have the documents or, you, you know, your file cabinet is gone, your computer is gone. So this is going to be a frustrating experience and we want to make sure that we're uh, trying to eliminate those barriers and make sure it's as, as efficient as possible as we can make it as a government for the people impacted. Uh, and that will take us some days to weeks to really kind of fully get a first a handle on the size and scope of the impact. Because whatever numbers we know today, of course, is going to grow in terms of people who are displaced from, from their homes, uh, but then get a better understanding of the financial impact and how the province, and I'm confident the federal government as well, will be involved in the economic recovery. Okay, that is uh, Premier Andrew Fury. A couple things there that was interesting. Like he had spent a lot of time in disaster zones in Haiti, as you know, as I'd said. And and you know the fact that he's comparing Port Basque to Haiti is pretty remarkable. He knows his way around a disaster zone. The other big thing now will be compensation. The damage could be up to you know what, seven hundred million dollars, and a lot of the insurance will not cover you if you. If it's flood damage, like, you know, overland water. So that storm surge damage may not be covered. So is the government going to cover all that? Uh, Justin Trudeau right now is uh, going to be in Prince Edward Island, and then he'll go to Cape Breton, and then he'll go to Newfoundland in the next couple of days uh, to tour some regions. Um, so that is coming. So we're watching that very closely, and we're, we're still wishing our folks just who've lost everything. I think when a colleague from mine at Global News had found a, a, an elderly man whose house was totally destroyed and he's lost his teeth in it. He said, I bet the gulls have my teeth. Classic uh, Atlantic Canadian humor. All right, we got to take a break. Uh, on the other side of, of the break, something that you talk to me a lot about, should we be teaching more shop in high schools? Shop! In other words, should high schools be more dedicated to trades or not? What happened to shop? We'll talk about that next. Stay with us. Lots more to come on The Big Show.
time in your car doesn't have to be time wasted. Join the evolution of talk radio. This is The Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Should schools, like in grades 7 and 8, teach shop? I ask you because there's an article in The Globe, and an excellent article by a teacher named Rob McNair in Scarborough. Mr. McNair, thanks for publishing this in The Globe. And, and Rob wrote a pretty interesting article that I want to discuss today. Sam and I read it. He wrote it back, I think, early September. Why have shop classes disappeared from middle school? And, and Rob's a, a teacher, and he said, like, we don't teach it in grade 7 and 8. And he recalled being in grade 7, loving shop. You know, loving learning about machines and how to build things. And he just said, kids don't know how to do the basics now because they don't learn things. You know, it's interesting. Uh, my family and I, uh, a couple months ago, we're driving back from Toronto to Ottawa, and we saw a young woman, actually, with a flat tire at a gas station, you know, one of those gas stations. And it was, uh, you know, getting a little late, and, and my son and I walked over, and I said, are you okay? And she said, well, I've got a flat tire, um, and she never changed a flat tire before. And I said, oh, do you need help? She goes, that would be great. I, I, I've never done it. I'm like, Wow, you know, you, you're driving. You don't know how to change a flat. Totally fine. Um, she actually had a little puppy in her car. It was so sad. She was driving home. She just bought a puppy. Really nice young woman. And my son and I um, showed her how to change a tire. You know, we showed her in the back, got her spare tire out. Very bait. I mean, like the most basic thing in the world. That took us whatever ten minutes. We cranked up the car, took off her tire, changed. You know, told her. You know, she had a. By the way, at tire, I'm like, please don't go over 80 with your tires. She had a very small spare. And anyway, she chugged around and uh, got on her way. But even the basics, changing a tire, people don't know. Now, I'm not that, like, you know, I worked construction as a kid. Uh, I worked for three months in the Arctic on construction. I was tree planner, you know, we painted. But I wouldn't call myself, like my brother is a really good handyman. He builds decks, driveways. He's that guy. Uh, I'm okay. But shop classes, you know, we didn't have shop classes in grade seven and eight. I didn't have shop class. Sam, did you ever have a shop? Did you have like a, like in your school, was there a shop where they had, you know, machines that you could learn how to do like a lathe or something? Yeah, there was actually. I never took the class, but I know um, some of my friends did take it and they found it very valuable. And um, yeah, it was quite a popular class, I got to say. Yeah. And, and I know people are like, oh, you can, you know, oh my God, there's machinery and tools and, and, and you could get injured by it. But the truth is working with metal or working with wood, as Rob points out in his article, are really good. So I'm going to ask you this. At one eight five five six three three ten ten one eight five five six three three ten ten or seven ten ten. Should shop classes come back? My kids didn't have shop in grade seven and eight. They did not. I actually think it's a good idea. Now some people at one eight five five six three three ten ten. I've been told to slow down on the numbers, just for the record. One eight five five six three three ten ten. Is that better? Or seven ten ten? How's that for slow? Um, some people really, you know, think it led to 
their careers in the trades. And we've had a lot of discussions here about trades, how important it is, and the need for trades. Evan, I'm 54. Shop was grade nine and up. Okay, well, you, you, you took it. Okay, maybe that's the way to do it, grade nine. In the article, it was seven and eight. Maybe grade nine and up is better. Good call. Evan, they don't teach family studies, home economics either. And I'm a, I'm a, a teacher. Kids don't know how to shop, cook, budget, sew a button either. Hey, you know, that's kind of interesting on that. Because I told you my kids just left home and, um, you know, learning how to cook. We taught them how to cook. They're actually pretty good cooks. Learning how to cook, shop. Budget is a key thing. I think there's a financial... Look, there's a basic skill set. There's a life skill set shortage, right? Budgeting shortage, cooking shortage, uh, basic trade shortage. Lucas in Mississauga. What's up, Lucas? Um, You know, I'm running for school board trustee, and that's one of the things I've been touting is we need to get trades back into promotion. I think, you know, looking at my group of friends... The folks that have gone down the path of trades have all fared very well in life, and I think it's something that we should be proud to promote to our youth as early as reasonable. How How much much would it cost? cost? Like, what does it cost to put a good shop in with the tools? And, I mean, there's liability issues now. Like, you know how it is with the the world we live in. Uh, Do you have any idea, since you're running, what it would cost to put that stuff in a school, to train the teachers? Like, it, it must be a thing. I don't have, you know, specific figures for you, but in terms of getting the physical shop up and running, I can't imagine it would be something astronomical, especially with the, you know, the market on on used tools. There's always something available down the road of insurance. I think that's, you know, a whole other ballpark. But if we've been able to sort it for post-secondary and for secondary education, there's no reason why we couldn't bring it into some later years of middle school. Yeah, I agree. You got to get the teachers there. Uh, Good call. I appreciate the call. Good luck in your race there for a school board. I love when anyone throws their hat in the ring. Yeah, Lucas, thanks, man. Um, Someone just said something really, really smart to me, and it was uh, was a a text. Tuvia, uh, Evan, we need one year for shop, one year for home economics, one year of math for personal use, like investing, loans, mortgages. All those should be required. Now, that's a good idea. That's a darn good idea. I like that idea a lot. Um, Tuvia, is it Tuvia, Tevia? I don't know. Thank you so much. Evan, I still have my clock and tic-toe game, tic-tac-toe game made in grade seven and eight. Awesome memories. Oh, you made a tic-tac-toe game. The high school I went to was academic. I regret not going in the trades in high school. It was a decade later after office work drove me crazy. I got back to tools. Seriously, Evan, what happened to shop? Kids don't want to work. Lazy. I don't think kids are lazy. There was a digital revolution. Like, there's a lot of the workforce went into digital. It's not lazy. Like, you know, let's not blame kids. The world has gone hyper-digital. So, you know, that's not a terrible thing, too. Shouldn't they learn software developers? That's his career. Frank in Brampton. What's cooking Frank? Frank, are you there? Yeah, when I was back in high school, in junior high, in 7, 8, and 9, that's like 84 to 87, it was one of the most invaluable tools I had learned. You know, welding, uh, woodworking, you know, plastics, you know, all that stuff. If they would have had it when I was in high school, I would have continued and gone into a, into, into a better trade. But I'm, a, I'm a truck driver by trade, but I would have gone into something with, with the carpentry or something else with my hands. Oh, that's good. You might have taken a skilled trade on well, first of all, thanks for, for the thanks for the work you're getting. By the way, our text board's exploding. Drive carefully. 
Uh, and I, abs- absolutely, they should make a comeback. I'm embarrassed to say I can barely change a light bulb. This affects my self-esteem daily as a homeowner. I still ask my dad for help, says Mike in Montreal. Mike, I, you, you know what? There's no shame in it. By the way, YouTube's good if you don't want to talk to your dad. But yeah, you got. there's no shame in wanting to learn, right? A kid should know how to hold a wrench, but they can sure text. Seriously, Evan, what happened to shop? Like, I, I get all this. Um, and when I was in shop class 40 years ago, I made my mom a wooden clock. She's gone now, but this day it hangs on my wall. Oh, that's great. Um, Evan, I know how to change a tire. I just get CAA to do it while I work on my phone. If it's going to take longer than two hours, I'll do it myself. I still think you should know it. CAA can't always do it. Evan, my two granddaughters in grade seven and eight are doing wood shop at Renfrew College. They love it. Denise, good job. Uh, real quick, Michael, do I have time for Michael? Michael, I got like 30 seconds. Give me a blast. Uh, Evan, I just want to say you're, a, you're the best guy on the radio. Keep doing everything you're doing. Thanks, brother. But as I was saying, you're screening there. I did have the luck to have Fort Woodshop class back in middle school and high school. And because of that, now I'm a very high-end refrigeration mechanic, and that's what inspired me to get where I am. And I think a lot of young people now need basic skills, knowing how to use wrenches, knowing how to yeah, use tools, totally. screwdrivers to get ahead. Hey, Michael, you know, um, can I just tell you something? I think I got 10 seconds here. I literally, my wife just called someone because our ice maker in our freezer broke. And I'm like, I, I looked, I'm like, I don't think I can fix this. So I could have called my you. number down, Evan. I'm glad we <laughs> fixed it for free, brother. <laughs> I'm in Ottawa. But, um, you know, some things like it's really hard. Even the guy said, you know what, you can't fix these things. But, and, and, and partly, you know, things are made to be redundant. But, Michael, thanks for the call, brother. Uh, guys, keep texting me on 71010. People want shot back, man. Overwhelmingly. We'll take a break. Bringing the story to life. It's Evan Solomon on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Uh, let's head back out east. I, I, I'm just not going to let go of our brothers and sisters out there who are putting their lives back together. They've been shattered uh, by Hurricane Fiona. And um, the Prime Minister is scheduled uh, to be in PEI. I think he's probably there right now, actually. Uh, Nova Scotia, he'll be in PEI, Nova Scotia. And then I think eventually he'll be in Cape Breton and Glace Bay. And then I think tomorrow he's going to go out to uh, Port Basque or Newfoundland, Labrador. Um, in the meantime, the defense minister has confirmed there'll be about 300 members of the military assisting in Atlantic Canada. Here's what she had to say. The ship's crew will be conducting wellness checks in hard hit areas. As part of these wellness checks, what CAF members are doing is that they're going in, they're speaking to the local communities affected. They're assessing their needs. They're helping to move people away from damaged and high-risk homes, and they're being as helpful as possible. So you get a frigate there uh, that they've sent in to help to some of the more remote areas, as the Premier of Newfoundland Labrador just told us at the beginning of the show. Uh, I don't know. I, I spent a fair bit of time on, on a frigate years ago in Charlottetown. Uh, in the Persian Gulf. So you got about 200, 220 folks on there, men and women who are working incredibly hard. Obviously, a frigate has the capacity to take a, a helicopter, then a Sea King. Um, so they have airlift capacity as well. Um, and they're very effective um, ships. Philip Brown is the mayor of Charlottetown PEI. Mayor Brown joins us now with the latest 
on his beautiful community and, and the island there that's lost so much power. Mayor Brown, I, I hope you're okay. Give us a sense of how, how you're doing there. Evan, I just want to say, love your show on CTV Sunday morning and loved it when it was CBC. But, Evan, I can tell you that we did speak to the Prime Minister on Sunday. I made a call to him, a direct call, to ask for uh, emergency financial assistance because it's going to cost a lot of money to do this cleanup. Uh, we started the cleanup uh, on Sunday, and it's been going day in, day out, hour by hour. Uh, Maritime Electric, our electric, uh, the, the, the electric company that provides a good majority of the electricity across the island, is working in collaboration with the city of Charlottetown, plus our telecommunic- telecommunication providers, East Link, Bell Alliance, and Telus. So great cooperation. We have about 200 frontline staff that are trying to get everything cleared up from fallen trees and, and, and fallen uh, uh, hydro poles and t- uh, telecommunication poles. It's been a lot of work, and big thanks go out to the EMO for the City of Charlotte right. and our emergency, emergency measures organization. They've been conducting and, and leading this operation right from the start. So how, Mayor, um, power back on for everyone, though? No, no. I no. live up just north of City Hall. No power yet. No power I yet. I not see it for three or four days. It's been tough on Lori and I, but you know what? It's, 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 it's the situation we're in, and I've said this over and over again. This is all about climate change. This is the only time we talk about it, and this city and all other municipalities across this country have to look at climate. Re- is that right, Mayor? You're just you're, This isn't like someone says, well, we've always had hurricanes. This way. You're like, sorry, pal, this is, this is different stuff than what I grew up with. This this is different stuff because the last time we had a a massive hurricane was Hurricane Juan in 2003. Then there was Hurricane Dorian in 2017. Now Hurricane uh, Fiona. This is two, three, four times worse than what we've experienced. So it means that these storms are getting... they're getting more furious, and the winds are higher, and it's going to cause more damage. But we can say that there has not been one death. The, the, there was a death post-Fiona, uh, co, uh, uh, and that was because of carbon monoxide with someone that was trying to heat his home or light his, uh, provide lighting in his home, and the carbon monoxide get into his home. But right. other than that, there was no death from the, the hurricane itself. So, so, so what about coverage? Like, we, Do you have any idea about the cost of the damage, Mayor? And well, then I guess the other thing is for, for folks around, like not just your province and PEI and your city of Charlottetown, but in Nova Scotia and, and then in Newfoundland, like does insurance cover overland, you know, water that comes overland from surges and stuff uh, or not? It depends on the insurance provider. That's, that's what it comes down to. You have to read the fr- fine print. But I know this much. Last night, council had a special meeting to approve money from our expo- extraordinary expenses account so that we can put that money out to hire private contractors, uh, beef up our own staff to do the cleanup, get things back to normal. It will be, uh, it'll take some time, but it's a work in progress, and I'm very proud of what we're doing. And definitely very proud that the Prime Minister, the Minister of Defence, sent uh, sent uh, sent down some some of the Army Army reserves and also Army mm-hmm. personnel to uh, to assist with the cleanup and trying and, to get things back. To and them. how are they functioning? But is the the PM's not is he he's coming to PEI though? Right? He he I think he's in Stanley Bridge. When I spoke to him on uh, Sunday, I said, "Listen, when you're in Charlottetown, drop by 199 Queen Street, that city hall." Oh, geez, he's on right now. Like, well, I, I, I'm just seeing him. I think. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking to Mayor Philip Brown. If, if you flick on your TV right now, Mayor, 
I actually think he's, uh, you're right, he's just at the bridge there and he's about to talk about some of the reconstruction efforts. If you were to meet him now, what would you tell him you need right now? We need financial assistance. We need that uh, emergency uh, financial assistance to help us to get as much as much equipment as 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 many uh, personnel out on the ground to do this cleanup. It's it's massive, Evan, and it's going to change the landscape of our city because we're a city of almost twelve thousand trees, and this city probably lost. I, I I'd say not half and not three quarters, but an, a large number in our historic parks that are in the downtown. Big trees oh. that had been just taken up from the root. On Sunday, I was at down at downtown, and neighbors were gathering around one of their favorite trees. Was, and I think the tree was it, it, it's, it was a Dutch elm, about 120 years old. Generations. And, and just just the emotion that poured out that this tree had fallen. So there's a lot of deep connection here. But you you have to see how people are working together. We have three reception centers. The one reception center at the east end of the city, volunteers have come out. Neighbors have come out with food. Neighbors have come out to say, listen, here's some money. Do you need to buy more food? Like the generosity in our community mm. has just blossomed and has shown how great this little community is as a city and as the, and as the birthplace of a nation. Can I just tell you, you know, my wife's mom uh, was born there uh, and we visited. We, she's got lots of family, my wife, on your island there. She's a cricker. That's North Rustico. So you went go from Charlottetown straight up on the other side. I know uh, where North Rustico is. I know where the crickers are. Yeah, you know the Crickers. So that's my wife's family. They're Crickers there from uh, North Rustico, her mom. How about that? You you have connections all over this country. Uh, would you believe that? No, her mom uh, Her mom grew up in North Rustico there. And, uh, so what's, what's the family name? Peters. Well, how, oh, many, how many Peters are there in, uh, in, in on the island, right? Well, there's the tons. Peters are like Galants and yeah. there's nose. Well, she's got a Galant, too. They're Galants. So we, we, were, we took the kids there, and, and you're right, Mayor. I know you guys are going through a tough time, but... When we visit uh, PEI and my wife's family there, it is, you're something special, that community, oh, yeah. and, and you're coming together. So we're sending you love and support. And I know the PMs, we're going to listen into them right now, but yeah. I hope that the, that you all get the support you need, Mayor, and I appreciate and we, it. And, and, and Evan, we need it, and, 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 and we'll get through this just like COVID. We're going to be working together because we'll get, we'll get through this all together. And I want to thank you for inviting me on your show. And as I said, I love your Sunday morning show with the, with the panel and the scrum. Yeah, that's a great mayor. I love that. Uh, you come on anytime, Mayor Mayor of Charlottetown, Philip Brown. And, and yeah, I know you're out without power. That's not easy. But uh, you and your loved ones and your wife, you take care now. And Thanks. I know you're doing tireless work. Thanks, Mayor. Stay safe. You too. Uh, that's Philip Brown, Mayor of Charlottetown. Uh, just for the record, uh, Sam, is there a better guy? Right? Right. He, right? He's amazing. Right? Like the people uh, in the Atlantic provinces. I mean, all this country. What a beautiful place. I will take a break. Listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is the Evan Solomon Show. Here's a headline for you: Should you be paid to do a job interview? Wait, what? Yeah, you know what? Should you be paid? I oh, I want a new job. I'm going to uh, do an interview. The employer says, "Please come in for an interview." You say, "Oh, great." Should you be paid for that? Actually, there are places that are starting to do it because there are people that will spend, you know, 80, 100 hours 
looking for jobs and it's unpaid work. But who should pay you? 1-855-633-1010, 1-855-633-1010 or 71010. Should you be paid for a job interview? Does it sound crazy to you? Well, Paul Taylor is the executive director of Food Share Toronto. The nonprofit said, you know what? This is unpaid work. We're going to pay applicants 75 bucks if you make it to the, to the interview stage. So there's a process. But once you, we, there you get called in, they're paying you 75 bucks. And Paul joins us now. Hi, Paul. Hi, Evan. It's great to be here. Thanks so much. Yeah. First of all, uh, congrats on Food Share, really important program. And, and you could talk about Thank it if you, you want. I have no problem if you throw in a pitch for this because so many people are suffering from uh, the high grocery prices and there's way too much hunger all around our, 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 our country right now. But talk about why you're paying applicants 75 bucks to make uh, for an interview. You know, I think the big thing for us is we recognize that as an employer, you know, we have a responsibility to do what we can to help participate in creating healthy people, creating healthy communities. And we recognize that, you know, capitalism has really informed the way we think about the world of work in in really big ways. And I think in our sector, especially, we should be seizing opportunities to challenge that. We should be recognizing people's labor. And from an equity perspective, you know, paying people for interviews helps them when they're covering the cost of transportation, childcare, taking time off work to interview. You know, we feel that those are all costs that, uh, um, you know, prospective em- employees have been forced to cover for far too long. So, so as an so, employer, we are, we are, we're paying that. Okay, so, so what happens? Someone applies to, let's say, work at FoodShare, um, and um, which, is, by the way, great, again, a great organization to try to have long-term oh. solutions for poverty and food. I, I totally, and the insecurities around that. So thank you for the work you do. Let's not, uh, let's not ignore that. But like, yeah, how hard is it to get to the interview stage where you're paying someone 75 bucks? You know, we've actually consistently had uh, um, a lot of applicants for the roles that open up at food shares. So you know, we haven't seen much change, despite the fact that we've introduced this this policy that pays people for interviews. So it's a tough process uh, uh, before this, and it's a tough process after this. But, um, you know, we bring on some excellent folks. And one of the things that they first experience is when we bring someone on is we they've gone through a process where uh, right off the bat, the organization has said, we see you, we see the labor that you're putting in even before you start working for us. And we want to recognize that labor. And I think we've found that folks started food share just elated and they get a sense of our values and our approach to supporting folks. Are you, um, are they, what's the reaction when people find out, you know what, I can't believe it. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get a job with you and you're already paying me just to do the interview. Well, it's, it, people are stunned, I have to say. People are often gobsmacked. But then they recognize that that's just one of many equity-based interventions that we've been advancing. So things like... You know, when someone starts at food share, we make benefits available on day one. Why in tarnation? Should someone have to work, wait three months to pass their probation before they can have access to life-saving medicine for them or their huh. children? You know, wow. for us, that's preposterous. So we do that. We pay living wages. We provide a non-interest emergency loan of up to $2,000 for our staff so that they don't need to access, you know, those predatory payday lenders. So folks are, are pretty shocked when they, when they start working. They are. And, and, but and just, just, just be, I, I, I gotta, I want to get calls here because people, I want people to weigh in on this. Paul Taylor, executive director mm-hmm. of Food Share Toronto, one 1010 or 71010. Should you be paid to, to interview? But Paul, just real quick, because we're talking about groceries. Boy, uh, people are suffering because of the price of groceries and, and oh, food wow. insecurity has gone up, hasn't it? 
It has, you know, and we're looking at about 5.8 million people that are food insecure across this country. And I would say the number was high before the pandemic, before the inflationary pressures. So we're incredibly worried about people who are experiencing severe food insecurity. You know, we have a right to food in this country, which means governments have a responsibility Mm. to create the conditions to allow people to do something as basic as eat. And they're failing us in that. So... You know, we want to see bold action, policy-based action, not just charitable-based responses to wicked problems like uh, food insecurity and uh, poverty. You know, today there's a call from uh, Pierre Polyev to, to axe the carbon tax because it, it affects food prices. Has the, has the price on carbon impacted food prices, Paul? You know what? I think there are lots of things that impact food prices. And the most important thing that we've got to do in, in terms of how we respond to this is we've got to center access. And when we're centering access, we've got to center access for those that um, have the most barriers to access, people experiencing extreme food insecurity. So there are a number of things. But I do think there are tools available to our governments. For example, in Quebec, we don't see the same kind of level of food insecurity that we see in provinces like Ottawa. And that's because they're indexing some of their social entitlements to inflation, Mm. things like welfare, disability income supports. So there are easy things that our governments can do to, to make sure that people have access to the food that they need, especially right now when we all right. face these inflationary pressures. Well, I've got two interviews out of you, Paul Taylor uh, from Food Share, I executive director of Food Share Toronto. I wanted to ask him why he's paying applicants 75 bucks for the interview, but it's intimately tied to the quality of life and, and, and the food insecurity. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate it, sir. Evan, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, real, real good to connect. Um, Shelly's been waiting patiently online. Shelly, what do you think of this? Hey, Evan, love your show. Thanks for having me. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. What's your, what's your call? I think if you look at it specifically in terms of employer and uh, seeker for job, it'll create an incredibly specific and efficient way of finding the right candidate. So you have headhunters or people who work for the employer. They're looking at very specific individuals. So rather than calling 100 people to see if you can pick a gem out of the box, you pick 10 very specific people who are equally qualified. And what that creates is actually a wonderful equality of opportunity and incentive for not just the employer, but the employee to present himself very well in the interview and to look at his qualifications in a sustained way. You know, I, I, it's a really interesting perspective, Shane. Can you answer something then? Someone from yeah. Gord from Oakville just texted me, well, Evan, if Food Share is going to spend my donations like this, I won't be donating. They don't want their donations to be spent to some interviewee. What about that? Well, well, I would counteract by saying that the employee has gotten himself to a state that he is qualified and could be possibly the candidate for the job. So it's a win-win in the sense that you're not only wasting these people's times because others have brought concerns about childcare costs, travel, whatever. You're creating an environment that is very competitive. And the only way for a society to sustain itself at the top, like Canada, is to create a competitive environment where the best people are sought after for the best jobs. And that's what's called equality of opportunity, rather than just inviting everybody because they want to create an equality of outcome, which is different. Shelly, you're a rock star, man. Okay, great. Thanks. Thanks for the comment, Thanks, by man. the way. You might be, uh, I, might be, I might be paying Shelly 75 bucks to do some radio stuff. He's, he's, got, he's hey, got it. I, hey, I got it. Invite me back anytime. I'll yeah. do your first one for free as a thank you. Uh, <laughs> I like the way you work, man. I like that. See that? It's a free call. 1-855-633-1010. And Shelly's already negotiated a fee. Nice work, Shelly. That's, that's, that, there's a quality of opportunity. 7, 10, 10. Hey, a lot of people are saying this is crazy. Like Jess is like, wow, Evan, I want a job there. Or my new job is just doing interviews. It's my new career. Uh, some people think it's ridiculous. You know, if you make it to 
you know, you apply for, they're not saying, you know, send in your resume, they'll send you 75 bucks. It's not like a slot machine. They're saying if you make it to the competitive process, it can be very time, you know, it's, an interview can take a lot of time. And, you know, you have to prepare for hours. And their point is maybe we should be um, compensating people. I'd never heard of this before this article. I'll read you one more from Sam. Uh, not my Sam here. Uh, I have no issue with companies and organizations creating, getting creative in how they offer incentives, including paid interviews to attract people. To, to pay for your interviews because it's unpaid work and should be compensated is hard for me to buy into. Yeah, I'm with you. Like, I think if you're going to ask someone, though, to, to prepare for an interview and to spend more than an hour, you know, I don't know, maybe you could cover things like we'll cover your transport and your coffee and, and something. Um, very interesting. Lots of controversy on that. Thank you so much, by the way, for the great calls uh, at 71010. we got lots more coming up. Um, gambling addiction? Wait till you hear this. Authentic voices, real conversations. This is the Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Later in the program, we are going to talk about a moral dilemma that you have, which is let's say you're at the Blue Jays game. The Yanks and the Blue Jays are in a really critical series as the Jays try to solidify and lock in their playoff hopes. But Aaron Judge is trying to tie the great Roger Maris's American League home run record by hitting 61, and people are wanting to catch the baseball. And there's lots of betting on whether he's going to hit it and when he's going to hit it. You can bet, bet, bet. And if you're watching football now, the NFL's back, you can bet, bet, bet. And if you're watching hockey, there's so much betting going on. And Wayne Gretzky's out there. He's shilling for those betting sites. And you know, Drake is out there shilling for betting sites, and Charles Barkley is out there, and you name it. If you're uh, into sports, if you're an athlete, if you're an actor, you've probably been bought up. And in fact, there's a phenomenal article in The Walrus called Who Loses as Online Betting Takes Over Sports. And so I want to credit The Walrus for this. And in it, uh, they talk about the gambling industry has totally changed. And it's in Canada, things have changed. Be, and we've covered this a lot in this program, certainly in places like Ontario, because there's new laws have taken place that now you can do single uh, game betting. And um, there's all sorts of um, betting going on and new betting sites. Um, because once you get single event betting in your country, uh, there's going to be billions and billions of dollars. And, and just in, I think it was August 2021, the Safe and Regulated Sports Betting Act got royal assent. And that means uh, it was basically a gold rush for betting. But there's a downside we never talk about. And credit to the walrus who introduced us to Steve Delaney. He's a truck driver from New York State. He's a recovering gambling addict, and he now hosts a podcast called Fantasy or Reality, or the GPP, short for Gambling Problem Podcast. And Steve joins me now. How you doing, Steve? I'm great, Evan. Thanks for having me on. I mean, you you were in the game there, like you loved it. For a lot of people, they say, Steve, it's not a habit. Like, this is no problem. It's just fun. It adds to the excitement of the game. Are you concerned about the explosion of, of these betting sites? Uh, yeah, I'm very concerned that um, 
not only is it being normalized and talked about everywhere as if it's just some fun thing to do, but what, what bothers me the most about it as is, is there's just no discussion or very little discussion about the damage that goes along with this. It's just advertised as, as if it's just fun. And there's so many people out there that even if it's just the conservative estimates where it's two to three percent of people that will develop a gambling problem to the point where I did, that's still hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people um, and just in North America alone in our shared continents. And I'm, I'm worried, especially with the young generation, with the explosion of the apps everywhere. It's not just DraftKings and FanDuel everywhere. It's not just daily fantasy sports like I gambled on it. You can gamble on It's uh, everything. Like you said, you can bet on if Aaron Judge is going to reach that record, when he's going to hit it, when, you know, it, there's just so many bets that can be made now, and it's so easy to fall deep into addiction without even realizing it. And, uh, and yeah, so. Steve, I talked to a friend of mine's uh, kid, and, her, and I said, do your boyfriend just a great guy? And he was telling me, I said, like, do you watch sports? He goes, yeah, with your friends, how, how often do you bet? He goes, we bet on every single game. I'm like, what? He goes, oh, yeah, but I don't lose. Oh, you had 20 bucks on every game. And they bet. I go, how often are you betting? He goes, every single day. We bet every day. That's part of how we all watch sports. Why? Because it's on their phone. And mm-hmm. I was, like, shocked at the amount of money that is. Yeah, it's scary. And I can tell you for sure, uh, anyone who's gambling and has a, a problem or even is teetering on an issue or – just in general, they're not, they're not going to be honest about their losses. They're only going to tell you about their wins. They're only going to tell you, hey, I hit this $1,000 jackpot, or I, I came first in my fantasy lineup and I won $20,000 in this contest. They won't tell you about the, the month-long losing streak they had, where there was a time period where I won some sizable um, jackpots you know, in five figures, and but you know, I wouldn't tell anybody. I mean, I didn't tell anybody about my addiction at all. But well, I, how did you I know you were an addict? Like, can I ask you a question? Like, uh, you were yeah. an addict. You were a gambling addict. I'm speaking to Steve Delaney, a truck driver in New York State, recovering from a gambling addiction and host of the podcast Fantasy or Reality, the Gambling Problem podcast. Like, you were in it. People now think it's normal. Like, you're watching a game. Part of the, quote, enjoyment factor is the bet now. I'm not a big better, but that's what it is. How did you know that you went from an enjoyment to an addiction for you? So... To be honest, I didn't, I mean, I knew that I was, had, there was a problem with it, you know, from not the start, but once I couldn't stop, uh, I kept chasing losses and a lot, like I didn't under, even understand that this was an addiction until I came into recovery. Now I have been addicted to other narcotics. I used to be a heroin addict in my teens and twenties. So I had it in my mind where it's like, to be addicted to something, it had to be something you were putting in your body. It had to be something that you were ingesting or injecting right, or something right, like right. that. So I got clean from that when I was 25 years old, but I didn't start betting until my mid-30s, uh, at least problematically. And I think the problem is it's so normalized where for years, even from my 20s until it became a problem in my 30s, it was something fun. It was something I did, like year-long leagues with friends. And, uh, you know, I the first time I realized it was an actual issue was I had been gambling or, you know, placing lineups to try to win some money to improve my wife and our children's life. And, uh, while doing this, I ended up getting entered into some free contest on FanDuel and I ended up winning a, a trip to Los Angeles to go see the LA Clippers and, uh, play the Brooklyn Nets. 
and I was excited that I had won a contest and I was excited to tell my wife, but then I realized, shoot, I can't say anything about this because if I do now, I have to acknowledge the fact that I got entered into this free contest because I had bet somewhere between 500 and a thousand dollars the previous month. Now, if I tell her this, now I have to tell her that I had spent all this money and why are you doing this? And that's when I realized that I couldn't be honest about it, that that's the first hint I had that there was a problem here, but I didn't fully understand it was an addiction until I came into recovery. And that's why I think it's important to talk about this on your radio program and, uh, you know, and publications across the world is because so many people don't even fully realize that it's a gambling. gambling And and when you were doing it, like just, I got a couple minutes here, Steve, it's so different now because it's in your pocket. It's like you, you mm-hmm. never are separated from the ability to bet. Are, 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 do you think that young people are going to have a real addiction issue? Uh, 100%, 24-7. I mean, it's just the 24-7 access to gambling is this, this day and age is completely different than it was even just a few years ago where you had to actually go to in-person brick-and-mortar casinos. Uh, DraftKings and FanDuel didn't come around until the mid-2000s. And even with that, you could only bet on the, you know, the outcome of a lineup. So I would set a lineup at 7 p.m. and I wouldn't know till the next day or or late into the evening if I won. Now you can essentially bet all day, every day, you know, and if you're not betting on sports, there's so many of these online casinos now, which can be even more devastating because especially things like roulette and blackjack, it is just click, click, click. And it's so, so, so what's the answer, so Steve? Quick. Like, what do we do? Like, I think this is, I think you're making a great point. What, what do we do about this? There's a few things. Now, from what I'm saying, you'd think I would think that gambling should be illegal. Now, I don't think it should be illegal, but I think it should be highly regulated. I think there should be something with these online purveyors or, or these apps where they, they know a problem gambler. They know if someone is is betting more than they should or betting more than they did or if they win a large jackpot and immediately lose it. There's got to be some accountability on these companies to try to find some way to identify problem gamblers and do something about it, even if it's just suspending their account, sharing that with other uh, apps so that these people can't bet, just making it a little bit yeah. harder because, uh, you know, and also there should be no betting with credit cards. To me, it's like if you're using a credit card to deposit money onto one of these sites, you're already showing signs of a gambling addiction. Like someone who gambles responsibly is only going to put 20 bucks down a week. That's a interesting. Yeah, man. And maybe there's a, maybe there's a limit and stuff. Uh, Steve, I'm running out of time, but your podcast, folks, check out Fantasy or Reality, the uh, Gambling Problem podcast. Steve Delaney, uh, recovering addict, as he talked about, just warning us, like, it's a new world out there, and we love sports, and we're going to talk about sports next. Uh, But there's a dark side to this, and it's insidious. Steve, thank you, my friend. I appreciate it. That's Steve Delaney. We'll be right back to talk about Aaron Judge. Bringing the story to life. It's Evan Solomon on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Last night, uh, I was celebrating Rosh Hashanah with, uh, we have no family. My wife's away. My kids are away. My mom's in Toronto. My sister and brother in Toronto. So in Ottawa, where I don't really have any family, um, I have a bunch of friends that we celebrate. You know how... Holidays are important, like rituals are important, right? So anyway, we have a Rosh Hashanah dinner, which is the Jewish New Year, uh, and it was great. 
and Dan and Whitney hosted this, and um, Dave and Emily were there, and the families. It was great. It was a really nice little dinner. And uh, anyway, after as we were having some really interesting discussions, I'm a big believer that rituals and and making some time for whatever you believe in, in whatever way, important ritual leads you to kind of interesting discussions. But of course, you're still watching uh, your sports scores. So here we are thinking about, you know, the spirit and the soul. And I'm like, the Jays are playing the Yankees. And Aaron Judge could be tying Roger Maris's American League record. I actually think the only real home run record, because Barry Bonds and Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire, and I remember when they were hitting those home run records, they were all juiced on roids. And Aaron Judge, the six foot seven, six foot eight, two hundred and eighty pound Yankee hitter, who's getting paid ten point one million dollars, but probably will get twenty million dollars next year because he's playing for a contract, is having one of these seasons of the ages, you know, surpassing the Babe Ruth home run record, now about to tie Roger Maris at sixty one. The Maris family's watching him. Uh, the Jays are battling to uh, get into the wild card spot and hold the top spot. They're behind the Yankees. I'm a Jays fan. I'm loving it. Gosman's holding, you know, strikes out Judge. They go to the 10th inning. I don't know if you watched it last night. They walk Judge after they've got a man on first and second. You know, in the extra innings now, they put a man on second. They actually, Schneider makes this incredibly smart decision to actually walk Aaron Judge in the 10th. Loading the bases, boom, strikeout. Vladdy comes up in the bottom of the 10th. Two outs, boom. Walk off. So pretty exciting game, but Aaron Judge still hasn't uh, hit the big home run. But people are literally in the stands. I can't believe it wasn't a sellout. Hoping to catch the Aaron Judge ball. In fact, Major League Baseball has put a watermark ball, like it's a special ball that they actually give to the umpire, so when Judge is up, because it's a record, they're going to watermark the ball, so no one, you know, because it's a collector's item, so whoever gets this ball, they'll know this is one of the actual balls that was watermarked by Major League Baseball, so you can't say, this is the Aaron Judge home run ball and rip someone off. This ball could be worth a million bucks. And the question I have for you today is, what would you do if you caught Aaron Judge's home run ball, would you give it back to him because he wants it? Or do you keep it? Do you say, you know what? It's your ball. You've, it's your record. You've given me joy. You take it. And you give it back to a guy, Aaron Judge, who will make more money in one month than you will make maybe in years. He's going to make 10 Point one U.S. million dollars a year this year. He'll make double that. Is it a moral dilemma? You you could get a ball that could be worth millions. Mike Lanzalotta is a famous Toronto Blue Jays fan. Remember back in May, he actually went viral when he caught an Aaron Judge home run ball. And he gave it to a nine-year-old fan named Derek Rodriguez. And we've talked to Mike, and Mike's back on the line. Hey, how you doing, Mike? I'm doing well, thanks, Evan. Nice to speak with you again. Oh, so nice to connect. Did you? Were you watching last night? Oh, of course. <laughs> did you go? You didn't go, did you? No, I am going tomorrow, though. Oh, man. 
Now, are you going to be planted in a place where you could get the Aaron Judge home run ball? Uh, most certainly, yeah. I'm in the same seats where we caught the last one. So, Mike, if you catch another Aaron Judge ball, how <laughs> crazy. Now, let me ask you. You gave the first one to Derek. That was great, the, the nine-year-old. If you caught this ball, that could be a million-dollar ball. What do you do with it, Mike? What's the moral dilemma there? Um, I don't think it's much of a dilemma, Evan. I'm, I'm keeping that thing, and uh, and we're going to try to get some returns from it. Derek Rodriguez is nine, and he looks up at you. He's like, Mike, Mike, I want the ball. It's my it's so ball. Funny. I like it. And this time you go, hey, Derek, yeah. uh, buzz off. I've given you one ball. This one's mine. <laughs> He's uh, actually, Derek and his dad, Caesar, are sitting sitting um, in the same section or, or I think, uh, section over from us too so we'll be we'll be pretty close to each other oh my god you're can you imagine the scene where after all you've been through mike the ball's coming to you he's got his arm out and you just like give him a little nudge and you <laughs> hero becomes villain hero becomes villain that's actually a bit of a nightmare scenario isn't it yeah. that's so funny so for you not not even a question you keep the ball uh well yeah i mean you talked about uh, you know Bonds and McGuire and the steroid scandal. Um, I was just reading today that uh, I think it's actually on this day in 1998, a fan caught McGuire's uh, 70th. Yeah. And he wanted a signed bat, a signed ball, a signed jersey, and he wanted to meet McGuire. And uh, McGuire said no. And then three months later, he sold it for, I think it was like three mil. Three million dollars. Um, and that's in 98, so you tell me what that, uh, that the equivalent to that is with inflation. So, so, so what happens if, you know, uh, Aaron Judge, you, you catch the ball, and you're in the stands, and the Yankees and the Jays come up and say, hey, Mike, you know, we've been real good to you. Aaron really wants that ball. And he'll give you, you know, season's tickets and, you know, something nice. You know, like, you know, he'll buy you a truck, but, you know, there's 30 grand, but it could be worth a million. Do you give the ball back or no? That's so tricky, right? Because he it, wants the ball, is. man. He's like, Mike, I've been good to you, man. I met you. What You're do you do? No, You're my best friend. <laughs> um, you know what? All, memorabilia is amazing. Like, who, who knows what you're going to do in the moment? But I can tell you, um, you know, paying off my mortgage probably would uh, trump yeah. everything. Yeah. <laughs> You're married, eh, Mike? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. If, if, if I caught a ball that's worth over a million bucks and I gave it back to an athlete that already makes 10 million, let me tell you, I wouldn't be married anymore because my <laughs> wife would kill me. That's it. It's funny that you, you know, you mentioned that because um, my wife and I were watching the game last night. And we were talking about this exact scenario. And it's like, could you imagine if this thing goes full circle and you're the one that catches it? <laughs> uh, just like lightning striking twice. Oh, God. <laughs> Honestly, I hope to God it's you. A, because you're such a great guy, and imagine getting this ball. But but B, because the moral conundrum will be so freaking amazing. Yeah. Uh, Stranger things have happened. Now, I'll tell you the other thing is, okay, so 61, Roger Maris' launches, uh, you know, the 61st home run. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you know the guy that caught it was a guy named Sal Durante? Do you know how much he got in 1961 to return it to Roger Maris? He yep, got 5000 5, bucks. Yeah, five, 5 But that's 1961. Yeah. 
That's Maybe. that's not nothing. No, you probably bought a house with it and cottage and everything. You you're probably <laughs> right. So this this is so. Are, now let me ask you: Are would you be prepared to fight for the ball? Um, you know what? I'm not much of a fighter. I'm more of a more of a lover. But um, you know, I will do my best to jump in there. And uh, I'm going with a buddy who who uh, who's bringing a glove as well. And and uh, we've agreed. You know, if, if we get it, fifty fifty half. Oh, half is that it? Oh, that's oh <laughs> man. You better put that in writing, pal. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, got, I screenshotted the text message. <laughs> That's a good idea. So you know what? I, I would do the same thing. You get a bunch of buddies. You, 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 you put them all around, and you're like, let's split it. It could be $3 million. That's payday enough for everybody. That's not a dumb idea. I think it's going to be a... All right, Mike, I, I'm going to put this to our audience. You're the best. First of all, good luck, Mike. Thanks for joining us again. I love reconnecting with you and the fam. Uh, that's Mike Lanzalotta, who's, I just love this guy. Uh, he went viral in May. He caught Aaron Judge's home run ball. I hope he catches another one. He gave it to Derek Rodriguez. one 633 1010 or 7-10-10. Would you give back the ball? Next. Strong views, powerful opinions. The Evan Solomon Show continues. Oh man! On the iHeartRadio Talk Network. I, I love this. Okay, so I I don't know if you're into baseball. Doesn't matter if you are. Like, there's a very cool situation going on. The Jays are playing the Yankees. They got Game Two tonight. The game. The Jays won three two in a walk off. Vladdy walked off in the tenth. Um, that's the big thing. The Jays are trying to secure the top wild card spot, and they'll get home field advantage, which is cool. Great, great baseball right now. We're, you know, late September, early October. Uh, you know, this is fa- fabulous stuff. But there's a second plot. Like the subplot's kind of interesting too, right? Aaron Judge, six foot seven, six foot eight, 280. This guy's a monster. He's on a $10 million US dollar contract with the Yankees, but he's actually going to be a free agent. They, could, they didn't sign him long term because he, he wanted more money. And then he's like, you know what? I'm going to play my last year out and show you guys I'm, how great I am. He is now on the verge of breaking the Roger Maris American home run record of 61 homers, okay? The Maris family's following around. I think he's been six games without a home run. He's, he's like due overdue. And so everyone, this could happen in Toronto tonight. This will be a, an amazing moment for Aaron Judge. But whoever catches this ball, and even the next ball, they might be sitting on millions of dollars. The Aaron Judge home run ball is worth millions. But a lot of people will give it back to Aaron Judge because he wants it. Like, the Maris family's there, and people will say, can he have the ball back? Do you give the ball back to Aaron Judge? Now, this is Toronto. Why would you give it back to a Yankee? But it's it's his record. It's not yours. And yet... You could pay your mortgage off. Now, we just talked to Mike Lanzalotta, who caught an Aaron Judge home run earlier uh, ball this year. Remember back in May, and he gave it to that nine-year-old kid, Derek Rodriguez. And then he met Aaron Judge, and then he went to the Yankees game, and Aaron Judge was like a mensch of a guy, a great guy. And I said, Lanzalotta, what would you do? And he said, you know, Mike's like, I got to pay my mortgage off. Rick in Toronto, what's up? Hey, Evan, how are you? Love your show. Thanks, man. What's cooking? Uh, what would you do? I, this is so great. I would, I would keep the ball and tell him that when he renegotiates his contract, then we can negotiate the price of the ball. He's right. going to be making four hundred million dollars. 
That's true. What's an extra four or five million dollars? I would actually not be greedy. I would tell them, listen, we'll renegotiate when you know how much you're making. I want a percentage, and I'll give half of whatever you give me to a charity of your choice. So if you <laughs> give me five million dollars, I would give two and a half million to a charity, but I would keep the other two and a half. Rick, you know what and I love about you? You're like, I don't want to get greedy. I'll take four or five million dollars for baseball. <laughs> I think I'd keep it, but but Aaron Judge will want it back. Rick is going to sell it and negotiate. And by the way, you're right. The guy's going to sign a four hundred million dollar contract uh, over the next uh, you know eight years or something. Rick, thanks for that. Uh, Victor in Toronto. By the way, I hope you're enjoying the, the, this series. It's fantastic. Uh, Victor, what's cooking? Yes, uh, I watched the game last night. Amazing. Uh, I would not return the ball for the simple reason, regardless how valuable it is. That money is more uh, means more to me than the average person as well than to Aaron Judge. If he wants it, he can buy it. Otherwise, I would not return it. Uh, I, uh, that money, my family, family members, that would help so many people. So I'm, with you. Reason, I, I you can't, I'm telling you, your family would kill you if you get a guy who's about to make four hundred million dollars, and you're like, "What'd you get? I got thirty thousand dollars." Like, what? No. Not, no, not, with not you. By the way, what a game last night. The walk-off was great. And nope. and I love this series. And, and great for Aaron Judge. I appreciate the call, Victor. Enjoy the game tonight. I hope the Jays uh, at least pop another win out of there. But this, this is October ball right now. Uh, Luke says, I'd give it back for 500000 You never get that opportunity again. I hate the Yankees. You're awesome. Hey, Luke, I, I love you, buddy. I'm going to tell you straight out, Luke. In negotiating, here's a little trick. Don't name the number first. You said you'd give it back for 500000 You may have just left a million and a half dollars on the table, Luke. If you catch that ball, brother, don't name your number. There is someone out there that may pay you a million and a half, two million bucks. You don't say you'd give back for five hundred. Just, Just wait till the offers come in, Luke. Uh, Al, what's up? Yeah, no way I'm giving it back. I'm going to ask as much as I can get for it. It's going to be worth a lot more to me, that money, than it'll ever be to him. So, yeah. Now, no. would you fight someone? There's a little kid there. He's there with his dad and mom. Like, you know, that kid Rodriguez. Remember that? That Mike was next to. And yeah. he's well, got his glove up. And he's, and do you, give, do, you give, do you give that little Derek Rodriguez a little body nudge? Like, hey, son. Time for me to pay some mortgage. Bop! You know you're on camera. You've just bumped a little nine-year-old out of the way, and you snagged that ball. Do you do that? Well, look, I'm not going to assault the little kid, but I'm going to go for the ball as well. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Al, I'm so with you. It's like it's like. uh, Listen, I'm not. This isn't about you, son. I'm. I'm just. This is about the ball. This is about the ball. It's about the money. And, uh, kid, you'll have lots of life left to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, This is good. Um, I am loving this conversation so much. And then, apparently, uh, my producer, Chris, Chris Viss the Bear, has already mocked me because I'm laughing. And he said that your laugh sounds like you're high. Here. (laughs) He played that to me. I'm like, what is that noise? 
I'm like, what is that noise? And <laughs> he goes, that's you laughing. I didn't realize. I'm like, I, I sound like someone's choking me to death. John, what's going on? Hey, well, uh, sports is a business, and uh, if I caught the ball, I would negotiate uh, the best price I can and make a deal with them, and that's that's how they they they, they operate, and no different. So that's what it you is. know. They and you know what? I, I love your answer, John. I love your answer because you know how they always say, you know, it's a business. They trade the person. It's like you know, I love you, fans, but. This is a business. I'm with you. At this moment, it's a, you catch Aaron Judge's ball tonight or tomorrow, uh, it's a business. And Now, uh, here's the question. By the way, if you, I guess that would be taxable, right? You'd still be subject to tax uh, not, if you... I'm not sure. Yeah, it would be taxable if you sell it. I'm not sure. It. Yeah. No um, no someone's saying this. Give the ball to Judge or the Baseball Hall of Fame and become an instant legend. Besides, there's likely to be a 62. Now, that's interesting, says DB. That's right. Well, DB, you become an instant legend if you catch it anyway, and you come become an instant legend with about a million and a half bucks in your hot pocket. But I like your style. Give it to the Baseball Hall of Fame. Is it really, though, that important to the Hall of Fame? They've got Mark McGuire. They've got all that dirty baseball stuff, the steroids. they got someone saying I'd have an auction with a minimum bid of a million bucks. Someone said they would trade the ball for the bat signed if you would go for that. Oh, oh, that's interesting. The bat that he hits, a signed bat versus the ball itself. What's more valuable? Oh, I like that. Anyway, you know what? One person's going to get it. The rest of us are not. But we will enjoy uh, the pursuit of excellence. Great conversation today. Sam, Chris, great to have you on the board. Was it Nick on the board today? Uh Uh, It was uh, Tony. Tony on the board. Hey, Tony. Thanks, brother. Uh, Thanks, everybody, for listening. Love our conversations at 710. Honestly, I just love what we mix it up. We laugh. We argue. We do it all. (laughs) Jeez. Now I got to go inhale some helium. See you tomorrow.